Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Heavenly Father, Lord, we call on you this morning that, Father, you'd be pleased to bless us as we look to your word. Father, may we look to you. Father, we ask that you would teach us, lead us, guide us, encourage us, if need be, rebuke us, O Father. Uh, But draw us into your presence, Father. We ask that you would commune with us, Lord, as we look to these words. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I don't think there's any book in the Bible that has met God's people over the centuries like the Psalms. Um, I can, I know in many junctions of my own life, I've held on very tightly to these sacred hymns. uh, Every emotion that we're capable of experiencing is covered in the the Psalms, uh, isn't it? Um, If you're feeling a certain way, just leaf through the, the book and you won't be long before you find that well someone's been there before and there's a lot of comfort in that isn't there sometimes just realizing somebody's been there before and I I love to preach through the Psalms I absolutely love preaching the Psalms and having just finished Daniel it seemed like the thing to do we have a few weeks before we can begin our study in spiritual warfare Ephesians 6 So I thought, let's uh, spend some time in in the Psalms. And earlier this week, as I was preparing for this morning, I stumbled across a couple of things in my reading. As soon as I read them, I thought, oh my goodness, I've got to share these. These quotes that I'm going to share with you are a little easier to get when you're reading them than they are to get when you're hearing them read. Uh, But uh, bear with me and see if if you can catch this. Uh, These words are from Matthew Henry, and they come from his introduction to the Psalms. And he writes, quote, We have now before us one of the choicest and most excellent parts of the Old Testament. Nay, so much is there in it of Christ and his gospel, as well as of God and his law, that it has been called the abstract or summary of both Testaments. This book brings us into the sanctuary, draws us off from converse with men, with politicians, philosophers, or disputers of this world, and directs us into communion with God. By solacing and reposing our souls in him, lifting up and letting out our hearts toward him, thus we may be in the mount with God. I think Matthew Henry has in mind Moses being up on the mountain with God. In that communion is what I think he has in mind when he's saying we're up in the mount with God. 
A few pages later, he continues, and he offers these words in answer to the purpose of the Psalms. He says they are, quote, to assist the exercises of natural religion. And listen to this line here. To kindle in the souls of men those devout affections, which we owe to God as our creator, owner, ruler, and benefactor. The book of Job helps to prove our first principles of the divine perfections and providence. But this helps to improve them in prayers and praises and professions of desire towards him, dependence on him, and entire devotedness and resignation to him. Other parts of scripture show that God is infinitely above man and his sovereign Lord, but this shows us that he may uh, notwithstanding be conversed with by sinful worms of the earth. And there are ways in which, if it be not our own fault, we may keep up communion with him in all of the various conditions of human life. End of quote. I read these words and I thought to myself, my goodness, this is what I aim for. This is what we have to aim for as we write sermons. Whether they be on the Psalms or they not be on the Psalms, this has got to be the very purpose for what we're doing. And I pray that God would work through these expositions to accomplish exactly that, to, kin to kindle our hearts, to kindle the affection in our hearts towards God, uh, to improve our prayers, to improve our praises, to increase our devotion and resignation, and to have communion regardless of where we are at the moment. Sometimes we stroll in here and we're on a high, and that's wonderful. Sometimes we stroll in here and we're in a terrible low. Uh, and actually, most of the time, I think, when we come through those doors, we're somewhere in between, aren't we? That's where life is lived, isn't it? Somewhere in between. Last week we looked at Psalm 23, and this was inspired by Donald's ordination service. And this week we turned to the first psalm in the Psalter, which is another famous psalm. When I was in seminary, I had to write a, a paper. It's called an Old Testament exegesis paper. We had to write one for the New Testament, too. And the purpose of these papers was to demonstrate to the seminary that uh, the student has developed the ability to take a passage of Scripture properly interpret it and apply it to the people of God. And the year that uh, our class rolled around, the Old Testament professor assigned to our class various passages from the Psalms. And uh, one of the things that uh, our professor wanted to see out of our papers was... Uh, why a particular psalm was where it was in the Psalter. In other words, why is Psalm 42 after Psalm 41 and before Psalm 43? What role is Psalm 42, for instance, for example, playing in the, in the overall message of the Psalter? Uh, why did the Holy Spirit place it where he did? It's a, not always a real easy assignment. And uh, Psalm 1 is very important that we see Psalm 1. I mean, why does the Psalter begin with Psalm 1 and not Psalm 42? Why does it begin with Psalm 1 and not Psalm 100 or Psalm 103? We could think of lots of Psalms we might be put in the front of the Psalter. Why is Psalm 1 there? Well, Psalm 1 is introductory. It's introductory and uh, it really sets the course. It, along with Psalm 2, set the course for the whole Psalter, if you will. And uh, one thing that we see for sure here uh, is that it makes a sharp distinction. A sharp distinction between two 
ways of life. There are two paths you can go by. Uh, is really the central message here. Uh, those words, there are two paths you can go by, may sound familiar to some of you. Uh, I'm looking around to see evidence of that. Uh, you might think I got those words from St. Augustine, or I got those words from Calvin, or, or from George Whitfield, or some of the others, but actually I didn't get those words from any of those guys. I got those words from Led Zeppelin and their 1971 recording of the song Stairway to Heaven. There are two paths you can go by. Now, I'm not doing this to promote, uh, I don't want you to go out and buy Led Zeppelin's greatest hits after the service today. That's not my point. But my point is, next time you hear that song, and when you hear those words, I want you to think of this sermon, and I want you to think of Psalm 1. That is my point. There are two paths you can go by. There's the blessed path. There's the perilous path. There's the righteous way. There's the unrighteous way. And it should be said that Psalm 1, by way of introduction, it should be said that Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. If you read, even if you just look at a, uh, 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 the ESV study Bible does this quite well, you'll notice that in many of the comments in the ESV study Bible, uh, there's a inter little introduction, introductory comment, and the, uh, I think it's Collins, I think Collins is the one that does the, the psalms in the ESV study Bible. Dr. Collins will will attempt to try to uh, define the genre of the psalm, whether it be a lament or it be a, a prophetic psalm or it be a kingly psalm. Uh, the, the psalm 1 is quite easy. It's a, it's a wisdom psalm. Uh, you, if you just look at the psalm for a, a couple of minutes, you can see its affinity with something you might expect to find in the book of Proverbs. It's a wisdom psalm. You know, you can think of, in the book of Proverbs, you can think of the father talking with his son about two different paths that he can take. There's the wise way, there's the foolish way. You know, there's, uh, uh, there's the righteous way, there's the unrighteous way. The psalm begins with what we sometimes call beatitude. That was the tie with our opening uh, reading this morning. Uh, the psalm begins with the word blessed. You know, there's... Uh, you know, we read Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Uh, we call those the Beatitudes. Notice that Psalm 1.1, blessed is the man. Uh, the Hebrew is uh, literally ashreah Adam. You actually know more of that than you realize. Uh, the first word, ashray, uh, means literally blessed uh, it can mean happy. Uh, it can also mean the one who's under God's blessing, which I think is the best way to go here. The one who is under God's blessing. Uh, and the next word, you all know the next word in the Hebrew, it's Adam or Adam. Uh, that's the word that's being translated man in our verse. Adam can mean literally Adam, the very first <coughs> man who was created. Uh, it can also uh, mean man or mankind. It, uh, but it can also mean person. Person. And that's the way the uh, Septuagint uh, describes it. In fact, that was asked, I think, Sis asked about uh, that word Septuagint Wednesday night at our Bible study. What's this word Septuagint? That's the Greek, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, 
And the Greek translation uses the word, Greek word aner, which could be translated person. Now I'm sharing all this with you because I want to develop a, a loose paraphrase that I think captures the Hebrew here quite well. Uh, it, it could go something like this. This is the one who's under the blessing of the Lord. Or this is the one who's under God's blessing. Or blessed is the man or the woman. Or blessed is the person. You get the idea here? This is the one who is, this is, the one who is blessed. Continuing in verse 1. The person who is under God's blessing is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, now let's flesh this out. First notice the blessed man or woman, the man or woman who is under God's blessing is the person who does not do these things, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So David is describing the righteous person by what he or she does not do. Sometimes we'll call this the negative. What we have here at the beginning is the negative. The second thing I want you to see is the parallels. When you're reading the Psalms, a lot of times we struggle with the Psalms because we fail to understand that the Psalms, they're poems. It's poetry that you're reading when you read the Psalms. And it's ancient Hebrew poetry. And a lot of times, I mean, very few of us read poetry in our culture today. We, we just, poetry is at a really all-time low. If you're going to start a poetry club, uh, you're probably not going to have a lot of signees up for your poetry club. You may be the only one. I don't know. There are probably some others. But uh, uh, we're not really accustomed to reading much poetry. But even when we, when we do read poetry, we're kind of expecting things that rhyme kind of like many of our songs do. Not all poetry is really meant to, to rhyme. There are various genres of poetry, even in English. But uh, uh, the, the heart of Hebrew poetry rests in the parallels. It's parallelism. I want you to see that we have several, we have three sets of parallels here. We have walk, sit, and stand. Do you see that? Walk, sit, and stand. Walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. We have walks, stand and sit. We have counsel, way and seat. And we have wicked sinners and scoffers. You see those parallels there? That's the very heart of what's going on. Now let's take a look at each of these. Let's start with the first one, to walk in the counsel of the wicked. What does that mean? Well, it involves a decision uh, to form a lifestyle. When we come across this word walk in the Hebrew uh, it's, 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 it's a matter of living. It's the way uh, a person lives. A person walks this particular way. It's, a, uh, it's he or she. It's their lifestyle. Uh, so it's a decision to form a lifestyle around the words or the advice of this world. It involves the mind. It involves the thinking. It involves the heart uh, that's being shaped and molded after uh, the thinking of this world. Does that make sense? Now, let me take this a little further, because sometimes when we read the word wicked, we have a tendency to put it, we have a tendency to think, well, that's Hitler and that's serial killers and that's those guys that go into McDonald's and open fire on people. That's the wicked. But actually, the word, uh, the, the word here, Rashaw, could be translated ungodly. 
which is really the way I believe. I think I remember the King James translation translates it ungodly. Some of your translations may use ungodly. And what's in view there is the person who simply lives life without thinking about God. Just don't give him any thought. Don't consider his will for your life. Don't give any thought to where, okay, am I living in a way that's pleasing to God? Am I, am I conducting my, myself in a way that would be pleasing to him? What is his will for my life? Uh, they simply don't give any thought to that. That's who's in view here. And you see, that category is much more broad, isn't it? But what did Jesus say? Our scripture memory verse. He said the way is broad that leads to destruction, isn't it? And those who go by it are many. So they don't concern themselves with God. Look at the second line. Namely, to stand in the way of sinners. This can be confusing to us because we have a tendency to think, okay, standing in the way. I mean, when we stand in the way, we're hindering something. We're impeding something. I can remember my grandfather, you know, hollering at us to get out of, out of the way. We're always in the way. We had a, a, kids, I think, we have an un, as kids, we have an uncanny ability to always be in the wrong spot. And, uh, I, I, you know, it always seemed on the surface like he was kind of being impatient with us, but he really wasn't. We would usually be standing in his light. We would have the light to our backs, and he was trying to work, and he'd be in the dark. And, and uh, he had some things that he would say to us to get us out of the way. Uh, yes, he did. And uh, we heeded those statements. Uh, that's not the idea here, to stand in the way uh, of sinners. To stand in the way of sinners is a decision to hold up, to uphold. It means to stand up for. To stand up for sinners. To stand up for the way of sinners. Sinners here uh, literally is people who are off the mark. So what this involves is standing up for Things, ways, particular ways that are off the mark. Uh, Standing up for legislation or trying to push legislation that is definitely opposed to God would be in view here. Advocating ways that are opposed to God's uh, counsel and God's will and what's pleasing God would definitely be in view here. Does that make sense? Standing in the way, upholding the way that is off the mark. Displeasing, opposed to God. And the third line here, to sit in the seat of scoffers, involves association. To sit in the seat of the scoffers, to associate with those who would scorn the scriptures or scorn Christ or scorn uh, the gospel, if you will. Uh, To sit in the seat. I mean, I think, as I was thinking about how to illustrate this, I think a wedding ceremony actually illustrates this really well. When you go to a wedding reception, there's usually a table set up that's reserved, right? And at the very center of that table is the bride and the groom. And the only people that are permitted to sit at this table are the people who are part of the bridal party, right? And the groom party. So by taking that seat, they're associated with the bride and groom, correct? Does that make sense? In a sense, actually, everybody at the wedding reception has a seat, (laughs) Everyone is associated with the bride and groom. Everyone actually plays a role in the wedding. 
that's uh, why we do these publicly. There is a witnessing role that is played in the wedding. So by taking your seat, you're associated with the bride and the groom. Does that make sense? So to sit in the seat of the scoffer is to be associated with those who scoff at the things of God. Now, Charles Spurgeon, he sums all of this up, pointing out a downward spiral here. And I'll have you to know that not all commentators agree that there's a downward spiral here. Not everybody agrees that that's the case. But nevertheless, uh, what Spurgeon has to write here, whether you agree there's a downward spiral in these verses or not, this is still a very true statement. He writes, quote, when men are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. They go from bad to worse. At first, they merely walk in the counsel of the careless and ungodly. Notice he uses ungodly, the careless and ungodly. He goes on to say, those who forget God. You see, he's pointing out here that the word wicked in verse 1 refers to those who simply just forget about God, live as if God doesn't, God doesn't exist. He said the evil is rather practical than habitual, but after that, they become habituated to evil and they stand in way of open sinners who willfully violate God's commandments. And if let alone, they go one step further and become themselves pestilent teachers and tempters of others, and thus they sit in the seat of the scornful. They have taken their degree in vice, and as true doctors of damnation, they are installed and are looked up to others by masters, or as masters in Belial. And of course, that's the Spurgeon part of it coming out. He says this as no other can say it. Uh, but there you, you see that you can have that downward spiral, if you will. Uh, no, says the psalmist. Uh, this is not the man or woman who is under God's blessing. If you look at verse 2, he begins to describe what the blessed man or woman is like. Verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. See that in verse 2? The term law of the Lord should be understood as the scriptures, all of God's word. And we could paraphrase it by saying his delights in, the, in his Bible. His delight or her delight is in God's word. And on God's word, he or she can be found meditating on it day and night. It'd be a good way to paraphrase that. And I think the sheer economy of this is really interesting. I mean, it's describing the way of the righteous man or woman who's under God's blessing, and there's only one thing mentioned here. I mean, if we were writing this psalm, I think we'd be tempted to write a bunch of things in here, wouldn't we? Who is the righteous man or woman? Well, it's got to be the one who loves the Messiah. It's the one who loves the Lord. It's the one who does good to others. It's the one who does all this and all this and all this and all this. We could probably sit down and write lots of stuff down in verse 2, couldn't we? But only one thing is mentioned. Isn't that interesting? The economy of this, the brevity of this, one thing is mentioned, and what is it? It's the scriptures. It's the scriptures. Here we see the sufficiency, importance, and centrality of God's holy word. This is one of the many places where a long time ago I, I formulated my philosophy of ministry. My philosophy ministry, as most of you know, is real simple. It's preach the word as best you know how and let God do the work through his word. That's, and you're here this morning because you want to hear the word. There's no other reason to come here this morning. 
you know, occasionally we're visited by folks that just aren't into this so much. And as I preach, I can sometimes see it on their faces. This isn't their bag. Of, this isn't their cup of tea. And then we, we don't tell sometimes we don't see them again. This isn't the world's cup of tea, is it? No. We'll get to that in a couple minutes. But here we see it. God's word is sufficient. I mean, by putting God's word in verse 2, God's word is sufficient to transform us into all of the things that we, would, we might be tempted to list. Where else are we going to learn about Jesus? There's only one place to learn about Jesus. It's in God's word. You can't learn about him anywhere else. And in order to be transformed into a person that's like Jesus, how does that happen? God does that as he works through his word in our hearts, doesn't he? That's how this happens. So we see it's central, we see it's important, and we see it's sufficient. Now in verses 3 to 4, we get a couple of word pictures here. Verse 3 tells us that the blessed man or woman is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. You see, there's a word picture there. You know, we can see this tree. You know, some, the, the tree actually is sometimes used as a, uh, as a, a, a slogan or a picture for different organizations. Ligonier Ministries has a tree. You know, this big green flowering tree, which is a, a symbol of life. Uh, uh, change, you'll see the change program around here has a, a symbol of a tree. Uh, and I think on the change program, half of it is dead and the other half is life. And it's, it's symbolizing change, right? Uh, that's their, uh, th- 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 this is the exact imagery that's being used here by David in the psalm. Who is the, the one who's under God's blessing is like a tree that's planted by these streams of, of water, which in its season, in the proper time, it yields its fruit. Its leaves do not wither, and all that it does, it prospers. Uh, so just as the, 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 if we tie this into verse 2, just as the tree feeds on the streams of water, life-giving, life-transforming water, so the man or, or woman who's under God's blessing is, is indeed feeding on God's word. Does that make sense? Now, the, the, notice the word planted. It's like a tree that's planted. Uh, Alec Motyer, in his, in his translation of this verse, he uses the words transplanted. He is like a tree that's been transplanted. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Transplanted from where? From the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Let's not get in our heads that this person is blessed because they do all of these things. They do all of these things because they've been blessed. There's a huge difference there, isn't there? A careless reader can say, okay, well, I get busy reading the word, I'm busy doing all this stuff, then I'll be blessed. I'll be like the tree that's beside the waters and will be like, want to prosper in everything that I do, and blah, 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 blah. He's been transplanted. The work of God, God's blessing is upon them, transplanting them beside places where they can be fed by these waters. The life is the life that God is breathing into this person. Can you see that from the psalm? Now, we might read this and say, okay, everything he does prospers. Really? Everything he does prospers? 
Well, uh, not necessarily in the world's eyes. I mean, you read through the Psalter, as soon as you get to Psalm 3, you're going to see, no, the Psalter doesn't teach that. Uh, Psalm 3, we'll maybe get there uh, here before too much longer, but Psalm 3 makes it, and onward makes it really clear that, no, uh, Jesus tells us in this world we're going to have what? All kind of troubles. But ultimately, as we're going to see here in just a few verses, ultimately, okay, there's prosperity ahead for, for the righteous. Amen? Now, conversely, verse 4, uh, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. You see, now there's a distinction being made. You see that? A comparison is being made. A contrast is being made. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. What is chaff? Uh, it's that part of the stock that's worthless after the head of grain is taken off. That you have this, this, this it's kind of like grass clippings, uh, real light stuff that uh, the, the wind would come by. Uh, it would just blow away. I have an illustration maybe that would be more contemporary for us. Imagine you're out in your driveway. You've been expecting a package that you can't wait to get. And up comes the UPS man. And he brings the package to you. And you're so excited about it, you don't even go inside to open it. You open it right in the driveway. And as you open up the package, the, thing, the item that you've been waiting for is nestled right down in, in the midst of a bunch of those little styrofoam peanuts. Soon as you get the box open, a brisk wind comes down your driveway and gets a hold of that box. What happens? Did you order a box of peanuts? Is that what you're really looking for? No, but these peanuts were keeping the package safe, just like the chaff keeps the, the grain safe. But the wind hits those peanuts, and now you got peanuts all over your yard and all over your driveway. They're helpless, the peanuts are. The wind hits them and they, they, they can't stand. They just fly away. That is the imagery that the psalmist is using to describe the ungodly. And we look at these word pictures and I think sometimes we're tempted to say, you know what, it's, that really seems to be opposite of what it looks like to us. Because quite often it's, it's the righteous that seem like they're struggling while the wicked are flourishing. They're getting wealthy in many cases. They're becoming powerful. They're becoming influential. You ever been kind of tempted to look at things that way? Isn't that kind of the way it appears sometimes? You want to know why we do that? It's because we forget about verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the what? In the judgment. You know, atheism, I was trying to think of a word. Atheism is the word ah and theism. Theism is the belief in God. Ah, put in front of it, means we don't believe in uh, in God, I was trying to think of a way. I don't know the Greek word for judge or the Hebrew word for judgment is mishpat. I don't know ah mishpat. We're kind of like uh, ah mishpat. We're kind of like uh, atheists in a sense when it comes to judgment. Like in our heads, we believe judgment is coming, but in terms of our uh, walking through the, the 
life, we act like it's not really going to happen. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. One is it's such an uncomfortable doctrine. We don't like to think about it. We kind of suppress it in our minds, don't we? If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, there's no condemnation for you. You're going to be able to stand in the judgment. But we know so many people that aren't. And it's a very uncomfortable doctrine, so we kind of suppress that. But as soon as we suppress that, what ends up happening is we see the here and the now is everything. And when we see the here and now is everything, well, it appears if, that's, if, we, cut the, if we cut the movie off before the ending, it does seem like the bad guys are getting ahead. But we cut off the ending. The psalmist doesn't do that. The psalmist has the ending in view. He says, listen, the wicked are not going to stand in the judgment. Sinners are not going to stand in the congregation of the righteous. They're not going to stand. They're going to be like the peanuts all over your yard. See, Psalm 1 embraces the whole picture. There's going to be a judgment, and at some point there's going to be a final judgment, and what is the, what is the verdict? The wicked will not endure. There are two paths you can go by. Isn't it interesting that Led Zeppelin said that? There are two paths you can go by. You know what I think is so interesting about that? That they didn't say there were three. They said there are two. Why did they say there were two? You would have thought they'd have said there were three. I mean, I don't. I never looked at those guys as being particularly righteous. Did anybody? Some of you might not even know who I'm talking about. Some of you're smiling. You're like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> they said there are two. I mean, sometimes doesn't it seem like doesn't it seem like there should be three? I mean, as we read through this passage, I mean, okay, the truly blessed person who never walks in the way of, or never walks in the way of the counsel of the wicked, you know, never walks in the way of sinners, never stands in the, or never stands in the way of sinners, never sits in the scorner's chair. I mean, we can all, we can all, first of all, we're all sinners, aren't we? And sometimes we come in here and we come into places like this and our hearts are really heavy over that fact, aren't they? Where are we at? What path are we on? Are we on the good path or are we on the bad path? What are we to make of this? Are any of us completely on the good path? Are any of us completely on the bad path? It seems like there's a third kind of in between, doesn't it? There isn't. So what do we do with our sin? What do we do when our hearts are heavy over the fact that we have, you know, we, we have walked in the counsel of the wicked this week. We maybe even have stood in the way of sinners this week upholding things that we shouldn't have upheld, behaving in ways that we shouldn't have behaved. What do we do with that? We go to the cross with that. You see, the cross is what makes the difference. The cross expunges that third category. There is no third category. The person who's under God's blessing, that's why I've been so carefully developing that. The person who's under God's blessing, where can they be found when they've sinned? 
face down at the foot of the cross. And when you're face down at the foot of the cross, that goes to show you are under God's blessing. Amen? There are only two paths. Zeppelin got it right. There are only two paths. Amen? One last, one last comment. Notice that the word begins, the psalm begins with the word blessed. What's it end with? What's the last word? It's perish. You notice that? It begins with Asherah, it ends with Topeth. It begins with blessed, it ends with perish. There are two paths you can go by. Two paths only. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this ancient psalm. We thank you for the wisdom that's contained in this psalm. We thank you, Father, that, Lord, you are a God who is fixing what is broke. You're a God who is straightening what has been twisted. You're a God who is uh, making things new that have become so defiled that uh, without your intervening, they would, be, uh, they would be completely worthless. Father, we thank you that we have such a graphic picture of two paths that we could, that we could walk the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. Father, we also see in this psalm that if we find ourselves on the good path, it's not our own doing. We think of the Apostle Paul and his summary of this teaching, for it's by grace that we've been saved, and this is not of ourselves. It's not of our own doing, but it's of your doing that you might uh, call us to be workers in the things that you've called us to do. So, Father, the praise and the glory is all yours, O Lord. We pray that you'll help to put these two paths, Father, firmly in our minds and create a fear, Father, in our hearts uh, for being found on the wrong path. Father, we pray that you would do these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.